Welcome to the World Beyond the Tale, the Page a Day American Gods podcast. I'm your host, James, and today we're reading page 208. So, how did you get out? Wednesday shook his head. I don't pay you to ask questions, he said. I've told you before. Shadow shrugged. They spent the night in a Super 8 motel south of La Crosse. Christmas Day was spent on the road, driving north and east. The farmland became pine forest. The towns seemed to come farther and farther apart. They ate their Christmas lunch late in the afternoon in a hall-like family restaurant in northern central Wisconsin. Shadow picked cheerlessly at the dry turkey, jammed sweet red lumps of cranberry sauce, tough-as-wood roasted potatoes, and the violently green canned peas. From the way he attacked it and the way he smacked his lips, Wednesday seemed to be enjoying the food. As the meal progressed, he became positively expansive, talking, joking, and whenever she came close enough, flirting with the waitress, a thin blonde girl who looked scarcely old enough to have dropped out of high school. Excuse me, my dear, but might I trouble you for another cup of your delightful hot chocolate? And I trust you won't think me too forward if I say what a mightily fetching and becoming dress that is. Festive, yet classy. The waitress, who wore a bright red and green skirt edged with glittering silver tinsel, giggled and colored and smiled happily and went off to get Wednesday another mug of hot chocolate. Fetching, said Wednesday, thoughtfully watching her go. Becoming, he said. Shadow did not think he was talking about the dress. Wednesday shoveled the final slice of turkey into his mouth, flicked at his beard with his napkin, and pushed his plate forward. Ah, good. He looked around him at the family restaurant. In the background, a tape of Christmas songs was playing. The little drummer boy had no gifts to bring. Pa-rum-pa-pom-pom, pa-rum-pa-pom-pom, pa-rum-pa-pom-pom. Some things may change, said Wednesday abruptly. People, however, people stay the same. Some grifts last forever. Others are swallowed soon enough by time and by the world. My favorite grift of all is no longer practical. Still, a surprising number of grifts are timeless. The Spanish prisoner, the pigeon drop, the fawny rig. That's the pigeon drop, but with a gold ring instead of a wallet. The fiddle game. And that's our page. Shadow's follow-up question is crucial and critical as the original one was, but he drops it just as soon as Wednesday reminds him that he's not paid to ask questions. As a repeat reader, this is incredibly frustrating because Sweeney very recently told Shadow not to trust Wednesday, but here we are. Super 8 is a motel chain and currently the largest budget motel chain in the world. The company itself was founded in 1972, about four years after Motel 6, which I strenuously and unnecessarily researched because I have the memory of a gadfly. Though Super 8 became more popular than Motel 6 despite ripping off a number of their earlier ideas, for instance, Motel 6 was so named because it had a $6 a night charge for rooms. Super 8 began charging $8.88 a night. The chain really started taking off in the 70s by placing locations adjacent to holiday inns and thus were able to cannibalize a number of patrons by undercutting holiday inn prices by a significant amount. And if that ain't metaphorical, maybe accidentally, for the battle between the old gods and the new gods, well, I don't know what is. Also of interest, at least to me, Super 8 opened their 100th location in 1981, their 1000th in 1993, and their 2000th by 2001 when the book was written. Growth slowed in the decade to follow, but damn if that ain't impressive. La Crosse is a city in Wisconsin with a population of about 51,000 people. One of the sister cities to La Crosse is Bantry, Ireland, giving us a connection back to Mad Sweeney. The area was so named because of a game the Native Americans played that was similar to the game of La Crosse. It was settled by white people in 1841 when New Yorker Nathan Myrick established a fur trading post, though he discovered that the French people had also set up a number of trading posts, so went just a little further on from where they were. 
The city grew around his trading posts as religious groups settled, including Mormons in 1844 and Christians shortly thereafter, and the town itself was incorporated in 1856. Like many towns and cities we've discussed, La Crosse has a fairly sordid racial history. The city was known as a sundown town, which are all or mostly white towns and cities, or even just neighborhoods, that would practice segregation, often by using legal means to enforce restrictions on non-white people, with the suggestion that all non-white persons would be better off if they left before sundown. In La Crosse specifically, the downtown area was segregated as a whites-only community and a large KKK presence developed in the 1920s to further disenfranchise non-white people. In 2016, Tim Cabot, the mayor of La Crosse, officially acknowledged the city's racist history with an apology proclamation, which I guess is a step in the right direction. Though I had to research a lot of this independently of Wikipedia, where I usually get my fast and dirty notes, because... Someone has scrubbed out all of these details from Lacrosse's history on the Wikipedia page, so some PR firms definitely earning their money. I always think of Lacrosse because it's mentioned in the song Static by Colorfinger, one of Art Alexakis's bands before he formed Everclear. Deep in the Heart of the Beast in the Sun is a ridiculously good album and well worth tracking down if you haven't heard it. And if you can't find it, get in touch. I know a guy. Wednesday continues his discomforting and disgusting sexualization of the young woman on the page, though in the previous instance with the desk clerk from the Motel of America, I don't know that we were given any sort of indication that she was as young as the girl on the page here. The little drummer boy is playing in the restaurant, originally titled Carol of the Drum. The song was written by Catherine Kennicott Davis in 1941 and first recorded by the Trap Family Singers in 1951. The song itself was not completely popularized until 1958 when it was recorded by the Harry Simone Chorale. I'm not saying it's the worst song ever written, but if there's a hell, I have to imagine that Catherine Kennicott Davis is forced to listen to that song on repeat for all eternity. Wednesday reflects on change and how people never truly change, and this is one of Wednesday's core beliefs, and we can discuss a bit further down the line whether or not this is true. I know we've already talked about it previously, but... Change is central to many of Neil's works, and American Gods is no different. He goes on to discuss various grifts, even if the names aren't familiar, though many haven't changed too much even in 2019. The Spanish prisoner is used when you get one of those emails telling you a Nigerian prince wants to send you money. In the original, a con man will tell the mark that a wealthy person is imprisoned in Spain, and this wealthy, distant relative will gladly pay the mark back a hundred times over. If you're asked to put up a small sum of money in order to get a larger windfall, well, that's the pigeon drop, which is often a part of the Spanish prisoner. See the 1973 film The Sting. Sometimes there's a switch of a briefcase and the mark is led to think he's fortunate to have escaped with his money from either the law or another criminal or something similar. Wednesday says that the fawny rig is the same as the pigeon drop, but with a gold ring instead of a wallet. Basically, it's selling a useless trinket to a mark for a... far more than it's worth. Wednesday mentions a ring, which would typically be gold-plated brass or something similar, and that could be sold under the pretense of being a family heirloom that the con man just hated to part with, but family emergency, medical bills, some other heart-wrenching tale. Of course, when thinking of useless trinkets sold to easy marks, I'm reminded of Salim's attempts to sell crap to American companies that would then be sold off by the dozens to the tourists who needed more stuff to sit and gather dust, but I digress. Also worth noting, at least to me, that the Fawny Rig is the name of the Sussex Manor and Sandman, scammed from a woman named Lady Blackhawk by Lady Joanna Constantine, ancestor of the most famous or maybe even infamous trickster and magician in the DC Universe, John Constantine. He was also the subject of the Hellblazer comic, 
In the good film, but terrible adaptation, Keanu Reeves' vehicle, Constantine. In the story, the house falls into the hands of a demonologist named Roderick Burgess, who captures Dream in the opening chapter of the story. There's all these little connections back to Sandman in the novel, and it's difficult to tell if it's Neil making conscious decisions to connect things, or if simply it's more of a matter of connecting themes and motifs that just appear in his work more broadly. Mostly I think it's the latter, but I really want to come back in about two months because we'll have a very direct reference back to Sandman, and I just can't wait. Get in touch with the show at theworldbeyondthetale at gmail.com or on Twitter at worldbeyondpod. Thank you to Julian Granganage for the use of his version of St. James Infirmary Blues as the show's theme. And thank you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow with another page, and remember, only the gods are real.